What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Jeff Wu is an entrepreneur and investor. He's also partners with Jake Paul and Anti-Fund. In this conversation, we talk about investment strategies, the future of venture capital, building versus investing, and then a number of companies that he's built, including HVMN, Better, Archive.com, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jeff, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Once you get in listening to it, let us know on Twitter. What did you like? What did you not like? What did you agree with? What did you disagree with? And what can we do better next time? All right, let's get in this episode with Jeff. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Jeff here with me. Uh, you're a fascinating dude. You're an entrepreneur, an investor, uh, a culture critic. You have uh, kind of this whole span of things. But I think what a lot of people in the tech world are fascinated by is you run a fund called the Anti-Fund uh, with Jake Paul. And when people uh, saw the announcement that you and Jake Paul were going to do a fund, they were like, all right, we know Jeff. He's in tech. He's built companies like he's legit. Jake is a YouTuber. What is going on here? Uh, why partner with Jake on this? And what is the thought process behind bringing together what are seemingly completely two different worlds, what appears to have a lot of success so far in terms of getting access to deals and, and making some great investments? Yeah, well, Pump, thanks for having me on the program. I mean, I think you were probably one of my first Miami friends from the tech community all coming here almost a couple years ago. Um, well, I think Jake's going to be president of the United States before 2050. <laughs> um, and I, and I, I, I actually generally believe that he is, one, he's Ohio, Cleveland, Midwestern boy, swing state. But I also think he personifies the American dream. I mean, he comes from, his dad was like a roofer, his mom was a nurse. And I think his career in terms of dreaming big, making mistakes, making triumphs along the way, I think that's a very, I think that's a very inspiring story. Um, but all seriousness, in terms of like us linking. Together. Wait, are you? But are you serious about? You think he really can become president? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't doubt that somebody from like the internet culture will absolutely become president in the future. Is it just his background and kind of his story that you think makes him potentially become president, or is there something else in there? That I you're think like, I'm more ambitious for him than himself. I think okay. he's actually quite humble about it. Um, but I think in terms of like what I've looked at in terms of political dynasties, a lot of it is just name recognition. Mm -hmm. If you think about the Clinton family, the Bush family, in, in some ways they are the aristocracy of America. These are generations of very well-known families that have Bush, 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 Clinton, Clinton, Clinton repeated in the media for decades. And if you look at this era of people who have their name out in the public, I can't name many other people aside from the Paul brothers, maybe the Kardashians, um, some of the YouTubers are up and coming that have that compounding power. We're like, again, like Jake is like 25, right? His brother's like 27. You do another 20, 30 years of compounding and they, assuming that they keep doing great stuff, don't make, you know, don't fuck up too badly, et cetera. 
how much power in terms of compounding interest can you can you see the guys run with? Yeah. And what's fascinating is they definitely started out as like Vine, then YouTube, then they started to like kind of be just famous for being famous almost. Yeah. And now if you look, you're like, wait a minute, like Jake Paul's a professional boxer. Yeah. Point blank period. Anyone who says anything else, like you get in the ring with them. Yeah. There's not a lot of people who are willing to do that. And then you look at Logan, like he's a WWE star, right? And so you, you're looking at like, wait a minute, how did this happen in what actually isn't really that long of a period of time? Like, what is it, 10 years or less maybe, where they've made these transitions into kind of the more mainstream audiences? And so your bet is just like, hey, things in motion stay in motion. They're going to continue to do this at a very high level for, you know, two decades, three decades. And I think it's like the brand mode is actually very, very competitive, right? Like if you're looking at just like fashion brands or consumer brands, how much capital, how much time is it going to take to compete with Apple, Coca-Cola, Louis Vuitton? Mm -hmm. I mean, literally billions of dollars and decades, centuries of time. Fortunately or not, fortunately, human lifespan is around 100 years. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, if you can start compounding your name and brand and image when you're in your teens, 20s, and also have, I think to your point, which I think very astute, able to transition mediums. Because I think most celebrities can actually can't hop platforms. Mm -hmm. Like you're a singer, you're kind of in that lane. You're just like a business person, you're in that lane. I think the versatility to cross uh, different platforms, and I think Donald Trump personifies this, right? He was real estate guy, reality TV show guy, and then became president. And it's like, okay, it's actually quite genius, quite versatile, and quite rare to be able to be credible across so many different platforms. I think there is a reaction against, okay, this person is too ambitious. Mm -hmm. He is out of his lane. Let's slap him down. Mm -hmm. And I think there is that antibody effect when when someone is too ambitious. I think there is a, bit, a little bit of this human instinct of like pulling people down into their lane. Yeah. So having this resiliency and maybe, can I say, uncancelability to get hit, be resilient, and then keep compounding I think it's a very rare attribute from a personality side. You got to be kind of crazy in terms of just like mental resilience and then some sort of versatility, genius, smoothness to be able to spot the trends, chameleon your personality, your image towards that new phenomenon and, and ride that uh, macro like tailwind. When you all announced uh, the fund, what was the reaction? I saw the public reaction. Yeah. And it was, some of it was like, haha, this is hilarious. Uh, uh, Jason Kalkanis, uh, I think you guys went back and forth with yeah. him a little bit, right? And like, I love Jason because uh, he's just as much investor as he is entertainer. Like, he really understands uh, the internet. Uh, what was it in private? Did you guys get messages of encouragement and support? Were people like, what are you guys doing? What did you personally get in terms of, were people like, hey, you're ruining your career? Or like, what, what was kind of the, the feedback? Yeah, I think... Uh Generally, just super positive. I'm very thankful for Chris Dixon, Mark Andreessen from A16Z being our first LPs. Uh, had done business with them previously, and it was great to see them believe in our vision, believe in uh, the execution, believe in what the potential could be. Um, but I think Jake and I have a little bit of a troll personality. Uh, I think that's where there is actually a, a lot of overlapping in terms of ambition and kind of entertainment to ourselves and to the world. Um, so I think when we saw Jason Kalkanis like kind of troll us being like, oh yeah, basically, hey Jeff, you're ruining your career like this, like he's like terrible. I think we were just laughing. I think it, it was funny because I feel like Jason is doing the same exact playbook as we are. Yeah. Like he's out there saying some troll stuff, entertaining and on the side running a bunch of syndicate money. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, like in, in some sense, like cool, like, 
I mean, I guess it's like it's entertaining to that level. But I think what I think was like the core reason of why we started the fund was that if you look at businesses and what an entrepreneurs and what they want from their investors, there's only two things that they really care about. One, do you have capital because you need money to pay for stuff and keep the lights on? And then two, can you drive attention? Mm-hmm. And I think with anti-fund, with the rise of additional celebrity-driven funds, Kim Kardashian just announced the new PE fund. I think that latter, where if capital is more, more and more of a commodity, being able to drive attention mm-hmm. in an increasingly noisy environment is increasingly powerful. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's necessarily, maybe it was novel or a bit of a stunt a couple years ago, but I think when you see the top tier VC funds building podcasts, building newsletters, you know, getting celebrity partners on board. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's changed. I think it's only going to accelerate towards people that can drive capital, people that can drive attention. And those are the core commodities or levers that any business needs to, to thrive. Yeah. When you start looking at um, the creator space, I'm going to use creator very loosely here because I always ask people like, okay, what's a creator? Is Donald Trump a creator? Is a journalist at the New York Times a creator? Like everyone is ultimately competing uh, for attention. Um, uh, Rich over at uh, um, uh, 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 Lightshed, uh, he's the person who I think convinced me of this first where he's like TikTok, Netflix, YouTube, Substack, the New York Times, and like your podcast are all com- uh, competitors. I was yes. like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he was like, it is an attention game. And ultimately, they are fighting. You are going to spend two hours on your phone today, or for many of us, six hours, right? Eight hours. I recently saw a video uh, where somebody was asking uh, some of the TikTok stars how many hours. And it was like 10 to 12 hours on their phone. Okay, what are they spending time on? It is a, it's a war of attention. And so when you see these other creators that are all competing for that, who's doing it well? Like, who do you guys look at and you're like, that person gets it, that person has really nailed uh, kind of this model? Uh, I I think we're at that realization, if not even more extreme on that realization, where um, a New York Times or a Wall Street Journal is like a basically institutional blog. Yes. And some of the best writers from those very storied publications become stars themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And I think there's a tension with the employees of these media corporations becoming superstars and then starting their own corporations, right? Like folks like Kara Schwisser, she was a quote-unquote classic journalist, but I would argue that she's more of a star now. She has her own podcast, runs her own conference. If she wanted to raise a VC fund, I'm sure she could raise a VC fund. Um, So to your point, I think there are just different labels and different flags that you can kind of wrap around who are like, hey, I'm going to have more of a journalistic, I want to be... you know, the fifth wall or fourth wall version of a content creator, Mm -hmm. or I'm going to be the star myself and have my, uh, my personal conflicts of interest and and personality out there. And I think with the more politicization of these institutional publications, I think the public perception is that everyone is just biased anyways. Of course you're human. How, how does anybody say I'm not biased? Like you're full of shit. You are definitely biased. You may write in a way that uh, removes bias or, or mitigates it or tries to hide it or whatever. But like at the end of the day, if we ask anybody, whether it's politics, it's finance, it's just uh, kind of general coverage. Do you agree that this person is right or wrong? Or do you, you know, what's your stance on this topic? They have opinions, Like they are biased. And I think it's healthier if we all just accept it. 
Yes. Right? Like, does not have this fake hypocrisy of like, hey, I'm actually just like the truth uh, dictator and everyone else has got to like listen. Um, but to answer your direct question, I think um, I think in terms of like groups or teams that are working really well on just the like, broad content creator side, I would say that Mr. Beast, Night Media, mm-hmm. executing super well, Milk Boys, Full Send, executing super well. And, and I think and like, e- of- but I think like even like looking up to you, like I think what you're doing from the tech investment content side, I mean, like there's a method to the madness in terms of just like <laughs> pumping out content in shorts. I mean, I think it's actually interesting in terms of innovator's dilemma, right? Like the old school institutions have to monetize through ads mm-hmm. and uh, subscription revenue. Mm-hmm. But I think what we're seeing with such as these celebrity brands is that oftentimes owning brands, owning merch, owning mm-hmm equity formation is actually a more durable business model mm-hmm. and founders like yourself and beast and what we're doing with anti-fund we can actually do company formation yeah where like the old school guys have to be like hey like we can't launch companies out of our following so th- this is a fascinating topic that requires understanding of history but if you go back uh and i'm going to get some of the exact details wrong but generally uh sequoia's first fund was in like the 1950s if i remember correctly and in it there was about nine investments give or take uh, i think three of them were incubated companies so they had an idea they partnered with some uh, founders they put some capital in and they owned an outsized uh portion of the business and then the remainder uh remaining part of the fund was all uh outside investment, just traditional venture capital. Of that, uh, two of the three companies they incubated delivered majority of the returns for that fund. Now, part of it was the companies worked. Another part of it was they had outsized uh, ownership of the business. Uh, But that is really the like dawn of venture capital was actually incubating plus putting capital out into minority positions in other companies. Now, the reason why that's interesting is because over a 50, 60, almost 70 year time frame, we have seen much less incubation and people just were like, oh, it's so much easier to just find people and just give them money and get smaller and smaller ownership to now there's people who make investments that could be millions of dollars and they get like half a percent of a business, right? But what we are starting to see and what what you're getting at here is like the new venture capitalists are not people just with funds looking to invest in other people's things. The new venture capitalists are showing up and like we're returning back to the 1950s of Sequoia and like we can build the companies better than – other folks because there's distribution, there's compounding knowledge, which is actually a very underrated thing. And then there's either access to capital where they're able to raise funds and do all this, or just like the businesses are so profitable that they have the cash flow to, to actually go and and uh, and build these. And so like if you look at Beast as, as an example, like Jimmy's launched how many businesses in the last two years. Yeah. I can think of just off the top of my head. Uh, he has all the different channels. He has the translation service for other YouTubers. He has the, uh, beast burger. He has the chocolate bars. Right. And there's probably others that I'm not even thinking of. And you're like, that dude's not a creator. Like that guy literally owns a private equity fund or like an incubator. And he is outperforming everyone else. Like yeah. I bet you his returns are better than the top venture capitalists in the world. Yeah. I, I I mean, he literally just raised a hundred million dollar fund <laughs> with the churning group. So they are going down that path. And I mean, I think even if you look at just traditional enterprise software companies, Snowflake was essentially incubated out of Sutter Hill Ventures, yes. right? And I think it's like the, the, to the point that you see these like emergent, random, super big s- software companies, like a lot of these have like very calculated, strategic capital mm-hmm. and go to market. And I think... Again, going back to what I think are the core commodities, one, access to capital, which 
goes back to relationships and trust mm -hmm. and then proven distribution advantage, which mm -hmm. again takes it, it takes a lot of time and energy to get your brand and be trusted as someone that can offer a great uh, product or service. Um, and then I think just within my entrepreneurial career, you're seeing that um, those two things compound and, and, and are just quite actually defensive moats. Mm -hmm. And you just see that the people that do it really, really well have really great access to capital and really great access to distribution. Um, so again, if you just boil down, if you didn't have anything, if you could be the best coder, the best marketer, um, oftentimes if you can guarantee capital and distribution, you can hire those people. Mm -hmm. So I think like the conversation of what is the best strategy as a founder individually to do com company formation, and then how do you partner with operators? I think it's actually a good time to just pull back and think, hey, from first principles, what are the most important things to double down on? Mm -hmm. So people will hear us talking about this and like, who, yeah. the, who, who the fuck are these guys, right? Yeah. Uh, you built a business, HVMN, uh, which uh, has built a ton of different products. But I think the story of how you've built some of these products really shows kind of the the blocking and tackling, the execution of, yeah. of not only being able to build products, but then go sell those products. So talk to us a little bit as to that first business. Like, how did you come up with the idea of, of going after this? And why did you think it was such a big enough opportunity to spend your time and energy yeah. on it? Um, even before uh, HVMN, our, our ketone IQ, our, our ketone drink company, I actually studied computer science at Stanford, had a little mobile app company. And at the time, Y Combinator was like fairly new. We were helping Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston throw like startup school and events at Stanford campus. So I got to know uh, the YC people pretty early. Um, so me and a couple buddies decided to start like a mobile app company. Mm -hmm. Long story short, it's called Glass Map. It was very, very early in the social location mobile space. We built the most efficient battery tracking algorithm for mobile. So this is before location services. This is like early, early iOS, where mm -hmm. tracking your location on, on, on iOS would drain your battery in three, four hours. So we had a, instead of a, long story short, we had a really smart algorithm and kind of hijacking the VoIP Voice over ah, IP hook very to control smart. your data, so it's server-driven in terms of location tracking mm -hmm. versus uh, device or, or uh, local-driven. Um, long story short, um, met Mark Zuckerberg because they were looking at acquiring the space, um, and this was like three months after we launched. And I think we had very big entrepreneurial dreams. We turned down a acquisition offer there at a pre-IPO Facebook campus. It was kind of do I you regret it, was, it? Do you regret it? Yeah, yeah. We would have made way more money than eventually selling the Groupon, which is also a great outcome for being like 23, 24 at the time. Yep. Um, but I actually don't regret it in the sense that like it's very easy to just to be arrogant when you're getting very early success. And I think that like six, nine, 12 months of like getting an acquisition interest and then just grinding and being like, hey, like we were growing linearly but not exponentially. Mm -hmm. And in startup land, if you're not growing exponentially, you're nothing. Yep. Right. That's just a polarized business model and outcomes. And then we pivoted to B2B and just like really grinding like kind of more SMB sales. Mm -hmm. Eventually our technology got a couple patents from it. So I own a couple software algorithm patents that we sold to Groupon. And then we were part of the merchant OS team. So we're very, very early in the wallet uh, point of sales. Yep. You know, we we're talking with the Square team as well to make a bidding dynamic for the acquisition. Um but just getting some real brass tacks of like, hey, it's actually friggin' hard to make money and make something of, of value was really useful for me as like a 21, 22, 23-year-old. Yeah. I think if I just punched out, made millions of dollars at 23 after like launching something that like didn't 
really actually have a lot of users or actually add a lot of utility. Um, I think added resiliency and understanding, that's probably worth more than like the initial upfront, like quick flip that I would have gotten. Yeah. Well, it, it's uh, it's fascinating, too, because it's right out of school. So, like, there's, like, the theoretical kind of academic world, yeah. which, uh, obviously, if you study computer science, like, you're going to get uh, uh, education, you're going to get knowledge, you're going to get some, like, experience in the classroom. But to then go out, and if you almost just, like, do it, like, I've had this where you have quick success doing something, and you're like, you're oh, just like hella, I'm I already, a fucking yeah. genius. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's better to then get punched in the face and be like, no, 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 hold on a second. Like, there is this grind to it, because it then uh, serves you le- uh, better later on yeah. right no 100 percent um so that so uh, having that again relatively early success i would say that it gave me time to explore and i just really got into biohacking and, and human performance and i think it was just like tinkering with nootropics ketogenic diet fasting so if you remember in like 2015 mm-hmm. um there's like a bunch of articles and media around Silicon Valley biohackers and smart drugs, Silicon Valley people and fasting and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And maybe I can claim a little bit of credit there. Like we eventually ran the largest online biohacker community based out of Silicon Valley. So we had like 80,000 people like doing fasting and all these experiments with mm-hmm. us. Um, and that was like kind of my first iteration through a lot of podcasting content. We had like Netflix, Showtime and all these different like shows come and watch me eat like raw meat and what's the like craziest fasting. thing what's the craziest thing you did um probably the i did a seven day water fast so i didn't eat any food for seven days okay what, um, happens, what happens when you do that like what was your body go through uh well your body goes into ketosis which it runs out of stored carbohydrate stored sugar it starts eating or you start converting your body fat mm-hmm. into energy so you know, our bodies are actually quite resilient. When I first embarked on this, and this is after studying the literature and talking to doctors and, 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 and PhDs, I thought that like it was actually just impossible not to eat for like two days or one day, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like, hey, like I, like your mom. I remember my mom being like, "Don't skip meals; it's bad for you." Right? Yeah. Eat your breakfast. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest learning I got from it was uh, actually understanding stimulus uh, and, and how your body interprets things. And I think I realized that I, I finally understood what true hunger is versus the bored. I am phys- like literally neurochemically bored. I want a dopamine hit by like drinking something mm-hmm. of and, and having some like flavor in my mouth mm-hmm. or I'm like literally bored sitting. So I need to like move around and go consume something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that embarked on a, just like a self-exploration around reading a lot of Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, meditation. And I think where it applied a little bit more to business is that I realized that most of our stress is intellectual stress and we actually our bodies are adapted towards responding to physical danger Mm. so essentially if you have like a like a legal problem or a business problem your body naturally reacts as if you're going into a fight or flight fight Mm -hmm. right your adrenaline dumps you're literally trying to fight someone your heart rate goes up and going through fasting understanding what true hunger was versus like false board hunger, I think was very informative for me to, from a mental resilience perspective, realize that basically every single business or modern civilization problem is not a physical, someone trying to kill you problem. Mm-hmm. It's someone is like suing you or like there's a business negotiation or you like you have a conflict with your boss, mm-hmm. but it's like a very intellectual. And decreasing your physical response, like just mentally being like, hey, no one's trying to kill me. 
<laughs> like calm the F down and just process it like very cold, logically, ruthlessly from a rational perspective has been very, very helpful as like a hack to be able to deal with a lot of uh, requests and, and stressful situations. Mm. Um, because I think it is actually very scary when like you have your first legal dispute or contract dispute or business dispute or like I, you negotiate a salary or a new job. And oftentimes you're like in this fight mode and oftentimes being trying to fight someone or run away from someone in that conversation is actually very, very bad for outcome. Mm -hmm. So I think through all this physical biohacking experimentation, I think it just really made me attuned towards the natural evolutionary pathway of how to respond to stimuli versus like what is the more rational, logical way, given that we're in a very, very different game. Mm -hmm. Like most of the problems that all of us deal with are modern civilizational games versus like physical I'm going into a fight uh, scenario. Yeah. And so as you're going through this process, like there's almost like a self-exploration, right? There's like a, oh, I learned something that's cool. Maybe I tell my friends. You start a company, right? Yeah. Like, like, like why start a company? And how did you think about like the commercial uh, kind of value or opportunity versus just being like, hey, I'm a badass now because <laughs> I understand how, you know, the human body works better than the people I deal with on yeah. a daily basis. Maybe I can use that to like my own advantage. Yeah, like, I think it's actually just actually quite, uh, tactical. So at the time in circa 2014, nootropics, which is like a, like a technical term for brain enhancing compound supplements, uh, the Reddit community was mm -hmm. growing quickly and the natural Google trends was growing quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt like at the time there was this untapped growing community behind this exploration or this revisiting of can I enhance my cognitive ability through diet, behavior, exercise, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was very uh, like lean startup mode. I coded the, a little landing page on Ruby on Rails um, and was taking pre-orders. So it's basically like a day of like buying a domain, Nutribox.com at the time, getting a pre-sales landing page, hooking into Stripe and collecting credit cards and then posting on Hacker News. Like that was like the experiment at the time. Mm -hmm. I remember we got 34 pre-orders for like 30 bucks of product at the time. So I pre-sold a thousand bucks of revenue. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of crazy enough to be like, yo, I, I should just fulfill them. Mm -hmm. And we just didn't really stop. And then uh, we, I think it was like three, four months later, or like six months later, we were doing like 80K a month of sales. <laughs> just like rinse, repeat. Like, uh, like uh, I guess we got to just freaking do this now. Yeah. Uh, so that's like a million run rate business. And I was like, okay, uh, maybe we should kind of scale this up properly. Go mm -hmm. from like hobbyist, um, homebrew version of nootropic supplements. So like, hey, let's actually develop uh, – you know, hire PhDs, build out a proper supply chain and all of that. And I think that's been an amazing platform to go from nootropics into fasting into eventually acquiring IP and, 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 and know-how from a DARPA research program. Describe this process, because uh, for, for those that don't know, uh, there's this ketone IQ uh, that recently has come out. It's a daily ketone supplement. Yeah. Uh, I took about, I don't know, was it 15 milliliters? Uh, is that right? Uh, before uh, we started. I think yeah. I'm high right now. <laughs> 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 um, you're supposed to take, what, 30 or so a day? So maybe halfway through, I'll, yeah. I'll come down and yeah. do it again. Um, but uh, when I saw this come out, I was like, 
oh, this isn't like, uh, uh, in my head, I was like, this isn't fuckery, right? Like this isn't like, Hey, we just like read some books and decided to come up with something like there's like real science to this. So describe a little bit about this process of like going to DARPA, getting the actual IP and then being able to commercialize it with great success so far. Yeah. Um, so as I was going down that rabbit hole of biohacking human performance, um, essentially like self-taught, like pretty advanced levels of metabolic biochemistry. And around 2016, 2017, there was a number of published literature showing that uh, exogenous consumable ketones were able to enhance cycling performance and enhance uh, physical endurance. And this was all in the backdrop of me really getting into fasting, me getting the ketogenic diets, me experimenting with carnivore diet. So I remember I, I see like Liver King running around all the time. Like I was doing like two-month blocks of carnivore back in like 2016, 2017. So it's cool to see kind of that reemergence of some of these like interesting axiomatic principles of, of nutrition. Yeah. Were you eating te- uh, bull testicles? Uh, did not – was able, didn't go for bull testicles, but was eating a lot of liver actually. Yeah. I actually like offal. Like it's actually very standard in – other Cantonese Chinese yeah. cuisine. I'm just like eating this stuff. I was like growing up as a kid. So it's like, oh, okay. Like I will compete with liver king on eating liver, man. Like, let's go. Like, <laughs> I'm not afraid of that. Um, I like eating weird stuff. It's actually yeah. one of my pleasures. Um, that sounded weird. Um, <laughs> but um, so, so in the, in the substrate of like doing a lot of fasting, really understanding ketosis and then realizing that, Hey, um, it's actually really hard to like not eat for three days, not eat yeah. for seven days. I remember it, like the first few times, just like feeling like not being able to really sleep on day two, day three, or that that evening because of hunger. Or, yeah, or, your your body's not used to just like yeah. your body's like, hey, I'm starving. Like yeah. Jeff, wake up, go hunt and eat. Yeah, um, you're dying, right? Yeah. Um, but it's actually very interesting. After you pass uh, this the third night, your hunger actually attenuates. You feel very zen. It's like you're very clear. Um, so I think when you hear of these stories of I believe, you know, Socrates for his academy, he would have students fast for 10 days before joining the academy. I think there's like a lot of this tradition of both religious and academic and mm-hmm. ph- philosophical traditions of people fasting before going and entering the school as a mm-hmm. proof of devotion, but also just like a, a clarification of mind. Also, it's very interesting that like shamanic rituals of plant medicine, ayahuasca, there's like a purging and fasting involved with it too. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of interesting cultural substrate around this notion of fasting and purification and clearing your mind. So I think there's a lot of little, I would say like Lindy cultural things that say that, Hey, there's something to fasting, mm-hmm. right? Moses was fasting, you know, all these like biblical stories about people fasting. Um, so if I can skip the pain of, and the discipline of fasting and just like drink ketones and get a lot of the benefits, that seems like a super massive problem to solve. Yep. Um, and apparently in the early 2000s, DARPA also had asked that same question. Can uh, scientists create a liquid superfuel that gets you a more f- efficient energy source? Um, and it's a kind of a crazy story because uh, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, this uh, gentleman, General Peter Pace, who was the first Marine general that became a chairman of the Joint Chiefs was the vice chairman of DARPA at the time and actually signed off on this research program called Operation Metabolic Dominance. <laughs> what a fucking badass Yeah, name. it just sounds badass. Um, and now, you know, essentially almost, you know, 20 years later, he's on our board helping us, uh, advising us on how to take this and scale this technology up to the, mm-hmm. to the, to the, to the, uh, to the next, 
I guess, stage. But at the time, um, one dose of this was cost $2,500. This episode is brought to you by Unstoppable Domains. They've partnered with Blockchain.com to create NFT domain names ending in .blockchain. It's the perfect ending to show that you're a believer in a decentralized future. The Blockchain.com community can join a short waitlist to get one for free at Blockchain.com slash waitlist slash blockchain domain. Free NFT domains provide all the benefits of premium unstoppable domains, including fee-free lifelong ownership. If you don't have a Blockchain.com wallet, no worries. There's new free domains available to everyone. Either join the waitlist for a free blockchain.com domain or visit unstoppabledomains.com to buy your domain today, starting as low as $5. Unstoppabledomains.com. This episode is brought to you by Bullish. They've reinvented the digital asset exchange. They give you access to DeFi features like automated market making and liquidity pools in a regulated environment. It's a whole new way to generate alpha. Bullish's total trading volumes have exceeded $25 billion just in the seven months since it launched. And their industry-leading order depth means you can trade confidently when you want at scale with better pricing and lower risk, all within a regulated market environment. Good reason to be bullish. Learn more at bullish.com slash pomp and follow at bullish on Twitter today. This episode is brought to you by Amber Data. If you're a financial institution entering the digital asset class, you'll need access to granular on-chain and market data from multiple venues to power research, trading, risk management, and compliance. Amber Data delivers comprehensive data and insights into blockchain networks, crypto markets, and decentralized finance, empowering financial institutions to apply traditional finance methods to digital assets. Amber Data eliminates the infrastructure setup, integrated challenges, and maintenance headaches to access digital assets data, reducing cost and time to market to enter the digital asset class. Learn more and download their digital asset data guide at www.amberdata.io slash pomp. Again, that's amberdata.io slash pomp. Go check them out today. So one dose being 30 well, milliliters like, or so. Yeah, like basically 10, 25 grams of ketones. Yep, would cost $2,500. Per dose. And is that because of uh, bureaucracy with military or pharmaceutical industry? Is that because of the materials? No, just straight up the technology to, to yeah. manufacture. So uh, like many organic chemicals, there's a carbon backbone. It's a, it's a carbon-based uh, molecule, ketones. So our body naturally converts fat fatty acids in the liver called ketogenesis into these ketone bodies. So it's just like a organic chemistry process that your liver does uh, when it's under the presence of no no glucose hanging around mm -hmm. or low glucose hanging around. Um, so the original technology to convert uh, into these ketones was taking crude oil and processing petroleum product into these exogenous ketones. So very dirty, very expensive, very mm -hmm. complicated process. But what happened in, in recent years is that with the rise of synthetic biology, we could actually code genetically engineered E. coli to ferment sugar into the precursors into this drink. So really it was a technolo technology breakthrough, not like mm -hmm. a, actually not a bureaucracy breakthrough. Mm -hmm. So by fermenting sugar with, with bugs, a much more efficient process. Mm -hmm. So it took, you know, we had a version one of this product that cost $30 a dose. And a lot of our customers were Tour de France teams, MMA athletes, and that was actually my initial foray, getting to know a lot of athletes, um, you know, getting to know Lance Armstrong, Apollo Ono, and then, you know, Conor McGregor's the world, Jake Paul's the world is actually all due through ketones. Mm -hmm. 
And then, and, and they were on like some search. They knew that, hey, if I can get deeper and deeper into ketosis, uh, my metabolism and, and my kind of m- metabolic health, all this stuff will improve and therefore I can be more dominant at my sport. And so they were already kind of in the science and trying to find this stuff. Or would you guys go and be like, hey, I know you're you know gifted as an athlete, but like there's this whole science thing you should learn about so that you can get better. It's actually the former. So I think what I realized being able to work with you know, the tip of the spear, elite operators in the military and elite athletes and like business folks or entrepreneurs and and tech folks like ourselves. I think everyone is just like smart and savage about winning. Yes. And like the very, very elite athletes are just super disciplined and super structured around gaining edges, right? Like sport is how do you get an unfair advantage that's fair Mm -hmm. against your opponents? Mm-hmm. Same with business, same with every single mm-hmm. endeavor of humanity that's that's competitive, right? You're just trying to find advantage. And I would say over the last couple of decades, like the nutrition and training regimens of cycling nutrition, cycling workouts, right? There's like this whole notion of recovery is super important. And you're cycling like heavy uh, workouts and then reco- backing off and doing recovery. Um, I would say like the most elite athletes are also doing it for nutrition. You'll have like – you will – lower your carbohydrate intake in preseason just to really ramp up your fat oxidation, mm-hmm. right? You're almost starving your body, forcing your body to get really, really efficient. And then when you're getting closer to competition, engorge it with like all the nutrition possible. Mm-hmm. So you're just super flush with energy when you go into your Olympic match or your boxing match or your MMA match. Mm-hmm. So this notion of exercise cycling and the nutrition cycling, it's like that is what people are – you know, full-time professionals are studying this and mm-hmm. part of these teams. And, I, and if you look at just sports medicine, sports physiology, before, like in the early 1900s, it was like a gentleman's sport, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just were like a rich person that had like your family estate. You're going to just go run the marathon or mm-hmm. you compete with other gentlemen. Um, and then I would say got a little bit more professionalized. There's like a, a, a coach that would like teach you everything. Hey, do this, do this workout, mm-hmm. do the nutrition. And now you look at sports departments, strength and conditioning specialists, nutrition specialists, recovery specialists. I mean, I, I think just seeing like Jake's, Jake Paul's specific camp, I mean, the, he is like actually crazy sophisticated with like literally a, a full-time breath coach, a full-time like stretching and, and, and like yoga coach, like mm-hmm. multiple boxing coaches, a strength and conditioning coach. Mm-hmm of chef nutritionist. And I think mm-hmm. that's actually quite commonplace with the elite teams in the military mm-hmm. as well as elite sports teams. So I would say like the whole sophistication has gotten very, very uh, granular because like the difference being gold and I don't know, 10th place is like so fractional at this time. Yeah. Um, when you see that, do you think that this will get into business as well? So like we already see, I don't know, like the super wealthy, they have private chef or they have, you know, some components of this. They don't think of it so much as uh, maybe performance as they think about it as it's saving them time or it's for their family to make uh, life easier or, or whatever. But do we know of stories where there are founders who uh, have very specialized uh, coaches for their own physical body? Not, hey, I have a coach that I talk to, uh, you know, for business strategy or something right. like that, but like actual physical optimization as uh, uh, performing in the business environment? I mean, I, I, I think people talk less about it, but maybe like one just very visible example is Jeff Bezos definitely is on some sort of optimization, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he's what, in his 50s and he's just like ripped, just ripped, 
right? Like you don't suddenly add 20, 30 pounds of lean muscle tissue without some hormone optimization and mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is not like uh, he just like bought some uh, steroids off a fucking website that came <laughs> from like China and he's like doing like self-administration. Like you're saying he's literally going to see a, a physician, like a doctor who specializes in it. They're measuring his blood work probably. They're, oh, I, they're trying to understand. I mean, that's actually deficient. an interesting point. I mean, I didn't think about that angle, but yeah, there are actually a lot of concierge private doctors who cater to tech billionaires and performance, mm -hmm. right? So they're like, and this is like a very interesting thing of just like modern American healthcare, which is, I think it's, you know, people talk about really a sick care, right? You really only go to the doctor mm -hmm. when it's like, I don't know, I've got some problem. Yeah. Um, but I think the most optimized CEOs, founders, investors that are in our, in our circles, they're getting their bloods done every month, every quarter, fine tuning everything. Is that what you do? Like, like what, what is your regiment, both uh, exercise, maybe like uh, from a, a physician in interaction and then also uh, from a diet or nutrition? Yeah. So, yeah. So like when I was like super measuring everything, I was doing monthly blood draws, optimizing every single micronutrient, hormone levels. Just I guess an analogy is that like we have dash real time dashboards <laughs> for your business. Yes. You probably know more about your car health and your, your house, your apartment health. Mm -hmm. And what, like for a lot of Americans, like we go, we like hate to go, maybe go to once a year, maybe once a couple of years to just mm -hmm. get some baseline panels. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 it seems backwards. We're like, we should be getting real time dashboards of just all our body's metrics. Mm -hmm. So it's very time intensive. Just, I don't know. I don't like being stuck with needles. Um, yeah. So, but I think in terms of just like understanding what you can do, I think it's actually quite material when it's like, oh, like my vitamin D levels. And I think most people's vitamin D levels are very, very low because mm -hmm. um, we're just indoors all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think all these things that we should be tracking because like our bodies are our most valuable asset, mm -hmm. we're not really doing. Mm -hmm. So I think when there's like companies that like are, you know, levels with the CGM and I think Eight Sleep, you know, Mateo, our, our mutual friend is tracking HRV and, and sleep metrics. I think it's all directionally in the right way of how to be better humans, right? Yeah. Like we should be metrics driven on, on our, on our bodies. Yeah. Why is testosterone falling so aggressively? This is like the, the thing that whenever I talk to people who, uh, maybe are like uh, surface level educated, yeah. they're always like, Oh, testosterone's falling. You know, every 20 years it's like getting cut in half or whatever. Yep. Do you have thoughts there? Or have you guys looked at any of this stuff in terms of one, is it important that it's falling, right? Like, like, should we be concerned about it? And then any ideas as to why that's happening? Yeah. I think it's actually just like a very open scientific question. Um, I, the leading hypothesis is there's just a lot of EP, like uh, BPAs uh, in, in, in uh, essentially like plastics that are uh, estrogen mimicking compounds are just floating around in the environment. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of like fragrances mm -hmm. are estrogenizing. So a lot of like the modern environment and modern like niceties of Pla like disposable plastics, fragrances, cleaning materials, um, all impact your hormone levels. Mm -hmm. So one, I think it is a real problem. Um, and I think there's also just like a lot of like funny things for like, for example, like nicotine actually is like anti-aromatizing. So it stops the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. So with the reduction of like nicotine is probably a good thing, um, compounded with prevalence of, of, of plastics, and then uh, increase in obesity and diabetes. Mm -hmm. So uh, the conversion, the aromatization of testosterone into estrogen is caused, primarily happens in your 
uh, adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. So if we as a society are getting fatter mm -hmm. with more adipose tissue, there are more sites to, for conversion of testosterone to estrogen. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like uh, all these environmental factors, these metabolic factors that are causing this reduction of testosterone. Um, do I think it's a good or bad thing? I think it's a very material thing. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have like a, a priori judgment on T and, and, and estrogen, but if it's an ex science experiment mm -hmm. over the last 20, 30, 50 years, mm -hmm. where humanity has succeeded and not killed ourselves over the last millennia, mm -hmm. and now we're running this experiment where the hormone levels of half of humanity are changing quite drastically over mm -hmm. a year, measurable year-to-year -year period. Mm -hmm. I think it's potentially very, very dangerous. I mean, I think you can kind of start speculating, does that impact politics? Does that impact culture? Does that impact societal preferences? Uh, look, we can kind of speculate there and you could probably get into trouble by speculating a little bit too far. Um, but I think it, at least like that's something that I care about personally, mm -hmm. right? Like if I were to advise myself or friends, like, hey, look, I've been talking to friends, like, hey, get your T levels measured. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually very surprising. Like being able to have these conversations with athletes, uh, with entrepreneurs, actually a lot of my friends who are in their 20s that are high level athletes, high level entrepreneurs, actually have very low T levels yes. compared to what their grandfathers are, right? I don't know if it's due to stress, environment, you know, having that, you know, extra drink on the weekend because you're stressed out, mm -hmm. all these things actually compound. Um, I think there's a lot of great literature how testosterone actually makes effort feel good. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just like, it, it actually impacts neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. So I think from a proactivity, uh, traditional masculinity perspective, I think these are like very, very like important questions. I think when you have, you know, I, I really enjoyed your conversation with Andrew Tate. Like, I think he's opening up questions and conversations around mm -hmm. what is traditional masculinity? Is there, is there a place in this modern world? Mm -hmm. And I think it would be, it would be silly to think that changing testosterone levels does not contribute to that conversation. Yeah. It, um, people can't listen to the conversation on YouTube because they took it down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go, go to Apple podcasts. Um, when, when you, put this into my body. I, I, for those uh, that didn't see, I, I just took another uh, 15 milliliters of this. So I think I'm topped out for the day. Yeah. Uh, it's 10 grams of ketones per serving. What the hell is going on in my head? Like, why do I feel like uh, maybe I, like clear or sharper yep. or, or high, whatever you, whatever terminology yeah. you want to use. Um, what is this actually doing to my body? Yeah, so I probably should ask that before I took it. No, but. no, no. I, mean, I love it. <laughs> you it took it YOLO first, it. so I figured we were good. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a true friend. Um, so ketones are actually a preferred energy for the brain. So okay. ketones cross the blood-brain barrier, and when there's presence of ketones, your brain actually metabolizes ketones in preference to glucose. So the really cool thing about ketones is that now we're going to go into uh, like high school bio. If you remember the Krebs cycle, the ATP cycle. Um, we have mitochondria, which are kind mm -hmm. of the power plants of the cells. It takes energy and oxygen and it converts in, and turns into ATP, the energy currency. So the cool thing about ketones is that ketones produce more ATP per oxygen. Mm. So it's literally at the biochemical level mm -hmm. more efficient than sugar. Mm -hmm. So that is like one of the key reasons why um, some of the research we're doing with the military relate to uh, – 
cognition reaction time at high altitude. Mm -hmm. So if you think about taking people up to 40,000 feet, think Afghanistan mountain ranges, mm-hmm. um, when you have less oxygen, your reaction time slows, your decision-making slows. Mm-hmm. If there are energy substrates mm-hmm. that can produce more ATP per unit oxygen when there's mm-hmm. less oxygen available and you're able to preserve function, that's very useful from a military application, but mm-hmm. of course from like a like an intellectual creator you know, application very useful as well. Yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating conversation right now because um, uh, I recently had Kaj Larson, a uh, pretty well-known uh, Navy SEAL, uh, and, and we were talking um, about all of the controversy in SEAL training. And so now there's people who are claiming like, oh, there's like rampant steroid use and like all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, dude, y'all want to know uh, what was going on in every single military school I ever went to? Like people were popping Advil. Right. Because like their bodies hurt. Yeah. Right. And like, is that is that rampant? Is that abuse? Is that whatever? Like, I don't know. But I can tell you that uh, in the military, guess where else that was super popular in a college football locker room where guys were taking Percocets and all kinds of stuff before they went out and played. Right. And so like you, you start to look at this, and you're like, man, OK, so we know people are going to take things because either want an edge, they want to uh, contain pain, they want recovery, they, they want whatever. But a lot of in the military specifically, it's like, what can we put on the soldier? So it was like, let's give them night vision. Cool. We've like now made this like thing that can see in the night and our warriors can go out in the night when other people can't see. Right. Uh, we've got scopes, we've got body armor. We've got like all these things that are external to the body that we are essentially trying to create like the RoboCop soldiers, right. To whatever degree. You then supplement that with things like Andrew, which I know you guys invested in, in in terms of uh, better intelligence, better uh, information, better uh, uh, technology. But really what you're talking about is like, well, what happens if we also could improve the soldiers in, in the military use case from the inside out? Yep. And going on a 10-mile run as fast as you possibly can to some degree is trying to strengthen the body and, and build endurance and like do all this stuff. But like there's probably other things that we can do. And if we have our soldiers eating cupcakes all day versus eating like a healthy diet, like they're being coached to eat healthy, not eat shit. So what is the difference between like, don't smoke cigarettes, you know, don't eat a bunch of sugar and like, oh, by the way, drink this drink that is going to help you in some way. Like it feels like a natural extension to me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think one of the coolest career experiences that, you know, through HVMN, we became a military contractor. So we have a multi-million dollar contract with Special Operations Command and like getting to know service members really at the tip of the spear and hearing their stories I mean, being a California, L.A. born, raised, and then a Stanford, like just a California kid, and then just like going to Fort Bragg and Virginia Beach and like you know Georgia, right? Like it's it was like I felt like I just understood America much better mm-hmm. um, by spending time with these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, like they truly believe in this country. I mean, they're they're bleeding and and had mm-hmm. you, you know. And, and, and people, you know, risk, like, lost their lives, def- like defending our, our way of life. So it's been like, I think one of the, honestly, the, one of the privileges or the coolest parts of my career so far. Um, but I think that um, there's actually like interesting, like bureaucracy and like contracting uh, related stuff where, you have to be careful about human experimentation. There's mm-hmm. actually like very interesting, I would say, like regulatory contracting vehicles that mm-hmm. we've just gotten exposure and a lot of learning from. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of good effort by uh, the general staff, the senior NCOs, 
um, and then the civilian staff looking to improve the process. Because I think it's, it's, you're actually right. Like it's much easier to just like have a better widget to install on on someone's over someone's body versus like, hey, how do we take care of the individual service member um, without crossing lines of human experimentation, ethics, human safety, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and it's probably the right approach. You, you got to be a little bit more thoughtful. Um, so I think going back to like even just like steroids and all this stuff, I, uh, my experience has been that the 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 higher tier units mm-hmm. they're like super locked down in, in terms of like what they can take and what they can't take yeah. and they're just very very serious about it so probably the right approach to be relatively conservative with dealing with our you know the tier one operators that really the tip of the spear for our country um, but can we have a little bit more speed a little bit more innovation I mean hopefully that kind of the Silicon Valley approach uh, it can speed things up and I think to your point around Andrew I think. It's great to have new blood, mm-hmm. new approaches mixed in with like institutional safeties. Yeah. Uh, one of the things uh, with Andrew specifically that like blows my mind is when I think of uh, the big prime contractors, like I think about lobbying, I think about like dinners, suits and ties, like, like there's just for whatever reason, it's an overgeneralization, but like there's a lot of uh, just like it's a machine, it moves at a machine's pace uh, and it's more based on like you know us, you trust us, uh, you like us, and like we can get uh, this done efficiently. Whereas Andrew showed up and was like, yeah, yeah, that's all cool, but like we have a better fucking widget, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I do think that we're seeing this across society, right? If you if you think a lot about, uh, go back to the media, for example, like there's a lot of publications that just kind of were like resting on their laurels being like, you know us, you trust us, we're kind of the big institution, you know, chill out, we'll, we'll get you the information efficiently. And then somebody else just showed up and was like, no, like you guys are wrong. Like I have a different opinion and like this is like something that people want. Yep. And so do you see that? when you're actually evaluating markets and, and businesses, I know that you guys built like uh, archive.com as an example. Yeah. Like it just seems one of the the key pieces to your career, the threads through it is that you guys actually are going after markets that people have been looking at for a while, but it's in some new unique way or with some new you know type of approach that ends up actually being fairly disruptive. I think you have to believe that if you're in an upstart position. Mm-hmm. And I think, I feel like history is on our side, where there is this innovator's dilemma, this uh, this 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 sludge that accrues when it's like the third, fourth, fifth generation, mm-hmm. where the ownership and the and the vision is really diluted across managing professional money bean counters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for, I mean, I I, I like I, I think just even for like like currency, right? Like I, you know, I think we talked a lot about crypto, and I think last year was like a crazy time for crypto. Um, like I, I want a world where people can choose better systems to partake in. I mean, I think it, it would suck to be forced to, uh, you know, like I, when I see like the British royalty, I think it's like kind of crazy that like, hey, they're literally having to pledge their allegiance and they're like, I feel very lucky to be an American. I pledge allegiance to a flag or a constitution or an idea. Mm-hmm. But literally, our, our friends over you know, across the pond literally the pledge to a queen or a king, and it's like, damn, like I thought this is like some Game of Thrones stuff. Like you got literally bend the knee to get a, a award from like some nice, you know, friendly elder. The queen was getting a dollar a head from every person who lived in Australia. Still, like there's a dollar a head tax 
on every Australian because it was like still a a, a queen, you know, land or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, yo, fuck that. <laughs> and I and I get that like there's a reason why it's there, how they came upon it. There's no one who's been like disrupting it. A lot of times when it comes to this geopolitical stuff, there has to be like revolution and war and like all these things that actually people who have been exposed to that stuff are like, hey, you want to avoid that at all costs and only use it as a last resort. Uh, but it is wild in 2022 that the citizens of Australia were paying a tax, someone who lives across the world. Yeah, and they're a private estate. And then, and, then, and then like the queen is able to just transfer all her assets to Charles, right? It's just like, oh man, like different roles being played um so like i think like yeah and i and i think when you look at that when you step back like hey like there are just a lot of like systems with government that might have made sense at the time a lot of legacy a lot of institution but like can we rewrite today Mm -hmm. um i think if you and i just were deciding like things to like start anew like i think we'd build a lot of things differently and i think a lot of people that are listening probably think the same way so when it is looking at new opportunities and new approaches, I think that's what we live, breathe, and we'll die on. Like, that's a hill we'll die on. Um, that's just how we operate. Like I, I want to operate in a way where I look at every single human, whether you're a barista or you're the queen or king of England. I want to treat you the same, and I want to be treated the same as well, right? Like mm-hmm. just treat me as an individual, not some weird legacy institutional thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, that I think has. That, that core axiom has trickled into how I think about business formation. So for Archive, um, so two, three years ago, we were, you know, one of the primary direct uh, marketing channels and distribution channels was e-commerce, right? We were pretty early on building our own e-commerce stack, moving over to Shopify, just seeing how everyone is doing the same Facebook, mm-hmm. CAC, LTV equation. Can you acquire and get payback within three months, six months, 12 months? Uh, and then optimizing your landing pages to like reduce your CAC, customer acquisition costs, right? There's like a math problem that every single DTC company was yes. doing. Um, I think people got really, really good into it, good, good about it. Um, but we were quite metrics driven around like, hey, like a lot of the like reported results were actually very, very soft. Um, and I would say two, three years ago, we realized the power of actual community and just thinking, what is the first principles of marketing? It's just like an extended way of like goodwill, like how do you get people talking positively on your brand? Mm-hmm. And how do you actually uh, manage a digital community? So Archive really came from this insight that, hey, doing this, the, like the pay to play, run Facebook, run Google, and then maybe have 10% of your spend on random other like Snap mm-hmm. and, and, and other stuff probably wasn't gonna be sustainable. Mm-hmm. I think now it, it, that, has, that has come true. Uh, so we just built a lot of software automation. How do you run a community? How do you actually trigger community events mm-hmm. uh, from someone, for, for example, posting about your brand? So um, I'm actually curious, like when someone tags Pomp mm-hmm. in a story, when they're listening to podcasts, like how is that being managed? Are you just like, like you have a team, you have a person like physically like looking and reposting, resharing? No, nothing. And it's it, just It's just if I just see it. Which is wild, right? Yeah. Like literally eighty yeah. percent of, and like most of how we perceive information is through stories. Yes. These ephemeral pieces of content. Yes. And we realized that like there are literally full time human jobs, screen saving this content, mm-hmm. tracking this content, and then maybe engaging with the creator, be like, hey, can we use this content, and repurpose mm-hmm. it? And we're like, wait, why is this like a 
full-time person's job. Mm-hmm. Like like at HVM, we had a person doing this every day, and it was like stressful to like manage them on Saturday when they had to go on vacation. Like oh, someone's got to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're like, okay, like we're a computer science guy. Let's build software to automate it. Mm-hmm. And that was the seed of archive. Like let's automate the workflow capture of all this community-driven events. Mm-hmm. And now you know, as we progress, and I think with increasing focus where there's companies like Open Store, Skims, like very, very sophisticated community-oriented brands, can you automate like an API to trigger automatic events? Mm-hmm. So for example, one of our customers, every time an ambassador posts like an Instagram story of like wearing this underwear or wearing this clothing, they want to give like a, a, a reward, mm-hmm. like a $10, $20 ACH Stripe payment. Well, doing this manually, sucks, especially if you're at scale, you have a thousand people that you want to be mm-hmm. tracking. Why not build software to automate it? Mm-hmm. So we're just realizing that just this core insight of how do you actually go to where the audience is, where the community is talking about a brand or a product um, and build web hooks, build APIs to actually trigger software events around it mm-hmm. um, has been a very interesting opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Compass Mining, the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. You can do it at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. All you need to do to start mining your own Bitcoin is go to compassmining.io today. Again, if you want to get into Bitcoin mining, go check out compassmining.io today. This episode is brought to you by Exodus, the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet. They offer beautiful, user-friendly blockchain products that sync across all your devices, making it easy to send, receive, and exchange over 150 crypto assets in one place. And with world-class customer service available to you 24-7, Exodus always has your back. Run, don't walk, over to exodus.com slash pomp for your free download today. Again, that's exodus.com slash pomp. Go check them out for your free download today. This episode is brought to you by LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of liquidity, and they have a 100% uptime track record through all the volatility spikes. LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology means that LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutions across crypto trading and custodial services. LMAX Digital, secure, liquid, and trusted. Go learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Again, that's lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. It, it's, um, it's fascinating when you start to understand that you were doing it with a human. Yeah. And then you just wrote the software to automate that yeah. over time. Uh, are there other things that you all have seen as you've built businesses where humans are doing it and you're like, nah, that's definitely going to be software, you know, two, three years. Like, why don't we just go build it? I think that's like actually one of the core themes of what we're looking at with anti-fun and just also where like I think Jake and I spent a lot of time. Um, I think we were actually like, we want to like start a company called 247 Industries. That's literally like an AI home security uh, <laughs> a business because I think Jake has had a lot of personal stories where he hires security guards that are around his property that are just like take, falling asleep, taking a nap, you know. Um, but I think I, that's I, a, on that specific point, uh, this is actually a thesis. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> uh, I think that somebody's going to build a 21st century uh, security business, but not a security business for like businesses or uh, even just uh, uh, individual like homes where there's cameras and stuff. Uh, if you think of one of uh, a very large business that a lot of people don't know about is uh, bodyguards, executives, yep. uh, security, all this stuff. And um, in Miami, for example, 
a lot of conferences. So what happens is a bunch of executives fly here and some of them will come with their own security, uh, but a lot of them just want to use whatever security is on the ground or, or, or whatever. Uh, you see this in other uh, 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 cities where there's a lot of events, Las Vegas, things like that. Go and search Miami Bodyguard on Google. You'll be like, I think I just teleported back to 1995. Just this wild, right? wild west. Because it's like, you know, look, and, and, and the people who are running these businesses, that's not the, what they do. They're not technologists, right? Yeah. So, the, so the websites are all built on like WordPress. They're not updated. They're like all these things. And so in some way, uh, there's an opportunity to just like go build a better one but have a website that works, yeah. right? What you're talking about though is like, no, what if you reimagine the entire thing? Yeah. And you say, hey, from scratch, you know, just like Anduril looked at what's a defense contract look like, this is, you know, what does this look like from a technology standpoint yeah. to protect someone's home, to protect them, to protect their business? I mean, I think like, yeah, so I think that's like a, a one specific instance, but I think that is going to be an inevitable transformation. I think like machine learning AI, I think you just see like every single month, there's just like mm -hmm. a breakthrough in terms of. Uh, game playing and what is physical reality, but just like a more complicated game than mm -hmm. like a little digital or a chessboard or a go board. I mean, you're just adding more and more degrees of freedom, mm -hmm. and it's like okay, the prog the progression seems quite exponential right now. Mm -hmm. Are there more and more jobs? And and I, like and I think the question is like, oh, like are you destroying people's livelihoods? And it's like that is part of creative destruction. I, and I, and I, I honestly don't know if like a retail job is like something that we want, should be happy as society to be like, Hey, like that is someone's like passion to be mm -hmm. in a retail job. Uh, maybe it is, but like, maybe it's not for a lot of people. I don't think a lot of retail job people are like, yeah, this is my life's passion. Let's be real. Um, so I think in terms of transformation, market opportunity and just, efficiency, I think those are going to be some of the areas that will have a lot of disruption and a lot mm -hmm. of opportunity. There will be some short-term pain as people transition, but mm -hmm. I, I generally just believe in people's resiliency, right? Like, like I just never understood like why like longshoremen for these ports get to have like this weird family, like oligopoly over like America's ports, right? Like if you just look at, cause I grew up in uh, LA County, Palos Verdes, a lot of friends were like families of longshoremen, they're getting paid like a lot of money to just like move uh, crates off of boats and in, 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 into trucks and ship them off. And like these unions are like very, very strong. And it's, and they're and, like, you can't even like, I can't even apply like, 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 like the jobs get passed on like family, the father, the son. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait, this is like a weird version of aristocracy where it's like, yo, you were part of the original longshoremen's group mm -hmm. and like, you gotta be, you gotta know them to like even mm -hmm. Get that really well-paying job. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I like I, I support everyone making a livelihood, but is it like, do we actually want some like weird monopoly that's passed on through family lineage mm -hmm. to like monopolize like an area that probably could use some updated machinery, mm -hmm. updated technology? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the answer is yes, because like again, to your point, like why does every Australian have to pay the queen? It's like, well, why does every American citizen have to like get their I don't know, whatever, their iPhone, you need mm -hmm. to pay these guys a tax mm -hmm. when it's not a fair competition. Yeah. When you look at entrepreneurship today, one of the types of businesses that I'm fascinated by are uh, there's uh, Trilogy, there's Constellation, uh, um, there is Tiny, right, in, in yep. kind of more of a tech-oriented way. Uh, there's a lot of these that are popping up now where people are going and they're actually acquiring businesses. How do you guys think about buying versus acquiring versus just investing in like a minority stake? 
yeah, I think that's a interesting like op- like like debate that we actually have. I think acquiring business is very hard because one the infrastructure to maintain and to retain the people that actually know how to like improve the product is actually quite tricky. Mm-hmm. Like being having sold the company and being amalgamated into like the Borg of Groupon through my first company, GlassMap, I just saw like the the very ch- difficult challenges of like a properly good M&A integration, mm-hmm. right? Like I think it's hard from an existing ego perspective because like I remember I, I, I probably was getting paid a lot more than like my random coworkers. I just mm-hmm. went through the front door. Mm-hmm. And then like I had like a bigger ego because I was like, oh, I got, I sold my company and I'm mm-hmm. more important. And it's like, wait, like, I don't think he actually like those are like the weird subtle dynamics of the mm-hmm. human personality side that mm-hmm. like I think are underspoken about with a big M&A kind of style play. So having been on the acquired side and thinking about if I want to be an acquirer, um, I'm, o- I'm always very uh, skeptical. Like, why are they selling to me now? Because like they understand their business better than I do. And if they're willing to sell it to me, like why are they just not trying to sell to me? If there's like some broader reason why our sentence is aligned moving forward, I will feel more comfortable about it, about it. But I think it's kind of dangerous to be like, I have much, I have a strict information disadvantage and you're selling it to me. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Um, so I feel like, so like I've been much more on the side of like building and incubating because mm-hmm. I feel like um, maybe with the same amount of effort, you and, and, and selection, you can just go from zero to like, you know, one, two, five million of revenue versus mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm going to spend five times, 10 times, whatever, multiple, whatever industry to buy someone's thing mm-hmm. and then maybe have to rebuild the whole thing anyways. Yeah. Uh, it, that's an interesting point of like, do you think about starting businesses and you're like, hey, the first goal is to get to like a million or $5 million and it's kind of bottoms up and like, let's get momentum. Or do you think about, you know, is this a billion dollar revenue opportunity and then like back into here's how we're going to get to a billion dollars in revenue. Like, is it more master plan top down or is it more, um, this is an interesting idea. Let's get started, build momentum and it's bottoms up. I think it's like the paradox of having to hold both states in your mind. Um, I think you, so like, I think you always have to have like this narrative, this vision of why this is like a valuable problem that we're spending our our scarce resource of time on. So yeah, I want to have this vision of like, hey, how is this going to be a billion dollar company that's worth all of our smart brains and energies and and limited uh, effort? Um, But I think when it's like pure narrative, I think that oftentimes is very dangerous because like you just go into like the atmosphere, just raising a bunch of money. You don't actually like make an actual business. so I think you, you choose a good market and I think maybe better our, our sports betting business is like a, a good case study for this, right? Sports betting, massive market. We think it's going to be a growing market as more states legalize sports betting. Um, but like what is our first, what is our approach to literally get the first state licensed and how do we acquire our first 100, 1,000, 10,000 users and have a really great experience with them? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is like the challenge in the art the mm-hmm. artistry of entrepreneurship. How do you actually have like this path, this winding path to like a billion dollar opportunity, but like don't get so full of your ego for it's like, yeah, you like you literally need one person to like pay you money to like mm-hmm. keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can find and hold or have a complimentary team where you can do both, I, I think that's almost required. It's, mm-hmm. it's insufficient to have one or the other. Mm-hmm. Like what, how do you get your first 5 million of revenue? Mm-hmm. I see a lot of 
investors starting to build companies again, which is exciting. Yeah. Uh, but I also see a lot of entrepreneurs who are uh, previously, they had the dream. They had the, oh, I'm going to go build the next you know Airbnb or, or whatever business. And in conversations over the last six months, market prices come down. I think reality kind of sets in a little bit more. Uh, there's more of an acknowledgement of like Airbnb didn't start off with like a multi-billion dollar plan. It started off with like, I have an air mattress in my kitchen. Yeah, and they're right? like selling like Captain Crunches or whatever to like pay the bills. Absolutely. And and, and so I do think um, uh, it goes back to kind of the saying of like everything valuable starts off looking like a toy, yeah. right? Um it feels like we are almost kind of re-entering this like uh, almost a renaissance of like real founders. And I say real because uh, there is this cohort of like, oh, I think I'm a founder. So I just go to conferences and networking yeah. and all the bullshit um, and, and then like try to position myself to be Forbes 30 under 30 and put it on my LinkedIn uh, versus – the people who are just like, no, like I actually don't give a shit about any of that stuff. Like I just want to figure out how do I build something that like people are willing to either use or buy from me. Yeah. Um, and that it, like gets me very excited. It yeah. feels like, oh, now if you have ideas, like now's the time to fucking go. Leave your job, qu quit whatever else you're working on, like go. Yep. Because for the next two to three years, you're going to see like this uh, capital injection in the early stages. You're going to see a renaissance of all this stuff. And five, six, seven years from now, we'll be talking about the companies that are started right now. Yeah. I mean, I think also just – Broadly, I think in, like the best investors I know, I think think of themselves as founders. I think we're all just like building stuff. And I, and I think if I when I was less mature as an entrepreneur, I would always look at like VCs or investors as like, oh, they're here to like give money and support. No, it's like they're just as much of a savage business person as you are. And it's like, yo, it's it's just hard to like build something that grows and compounds and and cash flows. Um, so I think it's just like a healthy correction of expectations. I don't blame anyone because I think that was probably the right strategy in mm -hmm. in full bull market. Like, yo, everyone was throwing around money like crazy. And I think, again, I think when we're at Hangout in Miami over 2020, 2020, it was like, oh, this is a crazy time. Um, fun time. It was like, and it's probably the right approach. Just like tell a great story, acquire capital. Just get long and loud, right? <laughs> like, li like literally, yeah. that was what people were doing. And yeah. I, I think uh, Mark Cuban may be the one who who said, like, in the '90s, like that was like an entire investment strategy it was just like get long and get loud. Yeah, and it feels like that that is, describes 2021. Yeah, was people were just long every asset in the world. Like they were <laughs> like, I just bought a fucking Beanie Baby. I got a baseball card. I got this. I got that. And everything's going up. Yeah. And then it obviously, you know, yeah. So like, come I think, back down. like you learn, like, hey, you also got it. It's not just like entry price, but also sell price, right? Yes. Like I think. I learned that from a lot of my Wall Street New York friends. I feel like, at least, for, I, we're probably cutting the same cloth. I was very much like a founder, accumulator, never hold, never mm -hmm. sell. I think I definitely learned a personal lesson in terms of, it's, you know, we're also in the business world where you also should de-risk and, and take uh, gains off the table. Um, so it's just like a balance. But I think to your point, I think it's great that ultimately, like what is, I, I think like one thing I like to say is that a lot of things are simple but not easy. Mm. Like, Make something that people will pay you more money for mm -hmm. than that cost you to produce. Mm -hmm. It's it's a super simple statement, but it's not easy to do and easy to do at scale. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that like as more and more people build, like I'm I'm, I'm very optimistic on capitalism and people's creativity and people's like ambition. Like when I look at that side of the world, I'm very optimistic. And then I look at the other news of like war and crime, and I'm like kind of it, it's. It's like, okay, like there's the world is so big, you can kind of look at whatever you want and you can mm -hmm. tell yourself whatever story you want. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's probably like our own discipline and almost our own self brainwashing or self religion, mm-hmm. which, where do you want to draw your attention to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think hopefully we can inspire more people to go towards building and creating versus like, Hey, like the world's going to shit and like, I got to like burn everything down. Yeah. It, um, it's an optimist view, which I think, uh, in technology is very persistent. Like the yeah. technology industry is, ve- you have to be an optimist. It's yeah. very hard to be a pessimist and, and survive. Uh, I do wonder how much of the pessimistic view we see outside of the technology industry, uh, is kind of a, p- a point in time and the pendulum swings back and people are like, Oh, pessimists, you know, they end up broke and depressed and like basically screwed. Um, and, even if the ship is going down, being the optimist is still a better position to be in, like the optimist on the sinking ship than to be the pessimist in, you know, the, the great empire, because, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you can only control so much. And it's so like your mindset being, you know, one of the most important things. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important on the individual level and important on a societal level. Like, I think, I think humans want to be part of the winning team. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like super important if, as you're thinking about team formation or like nation state construction, like how do you create this narrative that you're a force of good, force of positivity? Um, I think it's very dangerous when it's like, oh, your country is like founded on sin or it's like a bad position, we gotta tear everything down. Like, mm-hmm. like how does that allow you to build and, and create value, right? Like, and, and I think it's like, it feels very value extractive very, mm-hmm. versus like value accretive. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, like if we're just like looking at our neighbor's stuff and trying to take stuff, I don't know if that's like that world I want to be in, right? Yeah. Like, and I think I'm I'm more mindful of that because I feel like there are I feel like there are definitely just segments of every country, but I think especially in America where it's like very ex- like value extractive. Like, hey, we need to like punish people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like I don't know if we like that's the direction of the country we want to go in. Yeah, I um uh, I could not agree more. <laughs> uh, when you look out over the next five years, so what are you most excited about uh, in terms of uh, investing and building companies? Um, I think on the maybe like just like just like just fresh like just the approach in terms of strategy shift. Yeah, I think last year was like go long everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we've I I know we've just shared stories of just like just crazy deals just flying around things getting like oversubscribed in like 24 hours just fire stuff everywhere um i think the mood and and focus now is um be really involved incubate get on the ground floor with in in markets or or problems that we think that we have special understanding of or Mm -hmm. just are, are, are big believers in so i think ai machine learning and their applications into like very verticalized applications is very interesting. Um, I think, especially with Jake, with sport and media, I think there's a lot of interesting applications. And I think this better is is one manifestation of that. How do you get the modern version of kind of these entertainment products and community products? Um, and then I think, and then so like focusing a lot on incubations or super, super early stage, like ground floor level, co-founding, starting these things from scratch or just like backing like post product market fit, post revenue, like companies like Anduril mm-hmm. or like things like Alchemy, which is like a Web3 infrastructure company. Um, I think it's increasingly hard to be in no man's land, which mm-hmm. is that like you don't have enough ownership or control or 
moral authority to be like really that engaged with the company. Mm-hmm. But it's also like not post product market fit where, you know, our expertise with marketing, branding, like really can, is, they're still finding product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the philosophy is like, hey, polarize the position, like really understand are you in, are we in category one or category two? Mm-hmm. And be very, very polite about like, hey, just, you know, anything else is not in our focus areas. So barbell strategy. And uh, I think why you and I get along so well is like almost to a T. That's how I see the world now. Yeah. It's like there are a very small number of companies that you will not build but are grand slam opportunities. And you have to be uh, uh, aware of them and be able to get access to them. Sometimes you're aware and you can't get access. Sometimes uh, you could get access, but nobody told you or, or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, in those opportunities, like it makes sense to uh, essentially make angel-like investments or, or kind of fund investments where you're a minority kind of passive uh, participant and, and there's some great capital uh, uh, compounding that can occur. But I think it's a white, you know, kind of uh, slate in terms of the building side. Yeah. And my guess is that the next cohort of really big companies, people are going to be shocked by who's building them because it's not going to be, uh, you know, some some of the same types of people. Like the patterns are about to get broken yep. and uh, that is healthy. Uh, but also the best investors they're not going to be caught flat footed. Like I already see them. They're like, Oh, okay. World shifting. Like there's certain other people, you know, how many investors are like, I'll give Mr. Beast any amount of money he wants to build companies. Like there's actually a number of them that are very intelligent. They realize, okay, the world is shifting. Now this guy actually, uh, is, you know, is Mr. Beast, the new Y combinator. Like it's a different model. It's a different way of doing it. It's different value proposition, but Y combinator has been incredibly successful at being able to put, companies through and, and find success. It's going to be hard pressed to find someone who's doing it at, at a level that he's doing it right now. 100%. Right. And, and so it, it's like an interesting thing because with Y Combinator, you can invest in their funds. You can put companies through like all this stuff with Mr. Beast. It may not be as clear as to how do you benefit from that financially if you're just a passive investor who's got capital. Yeah. No, I mean, I, this is what I said. I said, I, I've always said that Paul Graham's the best entrepreneur in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years. Probably. I like, mean, I mean, just straight up, like he literally is a, multi-billionaire, literally has stakes in some of the most iconic companies built out of Silicon Valley and has made himself an institution, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and like, I think the way he succeeds is like, you don't even think of him as an entrepreneur. He's mm-hmm. just like the nice principal guru. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's part of the subject of Silicon Valley. Like he mm-hmm. succeeded so damn well that he's invisible. Mm-hmm. That he, and he, people don't even think of him as like a profit collector. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember like all, like he was like the only LP or besides like Sequoia for like a lot of the initial funds. I mean, the guy arguably made one of the best companies over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't even consider him an entrepreneur, which is like the super interesting jujitsu move, Aikido move where it's like, he's a silent killer. Like he mm-hmm. won. It is pretty freaking impressive. <laughs> right? right. Like people don't think of him as an entrepreneur. Yeah. But why Combinator's got to be worth a couple billion dollars? Easy. Yeah. I mean, if you just have a few points of Stripe, Airbnb, Drop, I mean, just name the, go down that list. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> shit. And he's like the main LP of all these funds. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, <laughs> it is absolutely insane. Uh, where can we send people to find you on the internet, uh, find out more about the companies? Uh, I'm available at Jeffrey Wu, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-W-O, Instagram, Twitter, um, Anti-Fund, HVMN, Archive, 
Better. Better, B-E-T-R. Available. Just Google. Yeah. (laughs) I always appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much. We'll do it again in the future. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends, and I'll see you all for the next episode.